Hey everyone, welcome to the Warren Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Warren. I'm the author of the Warren Letter, which is a weekly newsletter that uh, helps investors navigate uh, potential black swans, uh, macroeconomic news, crypto, precious metals, and pretty much all things markets and geopolitics. Um, I decided to transition this uh, newsletter into a podcast, and, uh, and and you know that's what you all are doing here, listening today. Um, it's been a very very busy uh, eight or nine days for me. I really haven't had any time off. Um, I've been going at it extremely hard. Um, you know, the spring spring is starting here in New Mexico. The land business is really taking off. Um, the last week I was at a uh, conference for those of us in the ranching and recreational property um, uh, business, and the conference was was amazing. I mean, the numbers that some of these agents are putting up in terms of land sales. I mean, $50 million of sales in a year. We had two agents at $100 million in sales um, for the past year. And it's just uh, the land business is just, I mean, is just going crazy. Um, and especially more so soon here, I think, with uh, the fact that 80% of fertilizer comes from Russia and Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine supplies uh, about 40% of the world's wheat harvest. And as everyone knows, commodity prices are just just going out of control. So it was really interesting at this uh, conference. We had someone who specializes in agriculture and, and farming and came and talked to us a little bit about Ukraine and the Russia situation and kind of what's going on there and how it's going to affect uh, global food prices and potential food shortages. And I'll, I'll get more into that later. Um, but I just want to say, you know, I, I'm sorry I, haven't, I wasn't here to, to podcast as much as I normally do. I was just really busy this week. It was it was it was crazy. So um, but hopefully some of that knowledge that I gained, I can share with all of you and it can help you make good investment uh, decisions for for your family and your financial future. So let's go ahead and get started. We'll look at the markets. A um, little bit of a down day today. It says uh, headline on CNBC is the Dow drops 300 points as oil prices rise. Um, the S&P is down about 0.8%, uh, Dow about 1% down, and the NASDAQ uh, doing the best out of all the indices at 0.76% down. VIX is uh, about 2% up, sitting at 23. Um, everyone can remember about three weeks ago, the VIX almost broke 40, which was uh, you know very high for the VIX, would have been the highest since uh, the 2020 pandemic crash. Um, bond yields, 10-year treasury yields, uh, touched a multi-year high above 2.41%. Today, we're sitting at 2.3%. Um, oil price, I think everyone's been talking about, everyone's been experiencing at the gas pump. Uh, oil is up almost 4% today, sitting at 113.59. Uh, natural gas is at 5195 now let's see what gold gold is up slightly about 0.83% sitting at 1937 uh silver up 1.2% 1. at 2505 or 25205 uh copper platinum and palladium are all pretty much flat palladium's up uh 1.82% sitting at 2500 um let's look at crypto crypto still i mean you know, I remember when it was at 65,000, it's at 42,157 Bitcoin. Ethereum um, down about 1% at 2971. So it's a little bit of a down day in the markets. Um, we've had about four or five up days in a row. 
Um, so it's understandable to get a, uh, a down day here. Um, personally, for the markets, I think the, uh, the trend is down. I think we had a little bit of a re- relief rally um, after Powell said he's only going to raise rates uh, 0.25%, 25 basis points, as opposed to um, what some people were worried would be a, a half, uh, 50 basis points, half percent hike. Um, and he was very dovish, as usual. Um, but I think he's going to slowly become more hawkish as, as, he, as the data comes in. I mean, the inflation is, there's no other way to describe it except out of control. I mean, the gas prices are extremely high, food prices. I mean, I'm going to go through the statistics here in a minute. Um, absolutely insane. And I think uh, in a rising rate environment with valuations still this high, I think the overall trend the market is down. I'm looking. I'm looking for S and P to breach four thousand on the downside pretty quickly here, um, and then I think we're going to cut even faster through that, and we'll settle and bottom somewhere around thirty two, thirty three hundred. But just my, just my guess, my prediction, just kind of what I've seen in the markets the last ten years, uh, looking at kind of the environment where we're, where we are, how high inflation has been and, and the tightening cycle that's coming. I mean, I think it's, it's inevitable at this point. And I think, honestly, I think the Fed wants that because, uh, you know, it's going to, it's really the best way to uh, defeat inflation is recession. And so I think the Fed wants to do that, um, you know, secretly, not going to say that out loud, of course, but I think they, they realize that inflation is going to be a worse threat than, infle- uh, than a recession at this point. So that's my personal opinion. Um, just a little bit about what I've been up to. Like I said, it's been busy the last few weeks. Um, was at this land conference, which was just mind boggling. Uh, the prices that some of these ranches are selling for, the prices that, you know, as you drive through the United States, you look on either side of the highway and you just see open fields of land. You see, um, you know, farms, especially in the Midwest with corn production, uh, soybean production, all these kind of things. And, you know, normally you just drive by, you don't pay any attention to it. But after this conference and, and, you know, being in the land business for a little while, I mean, the amount of money that big, large institutional investors, hedge funds, um, people like Bill Gates, uh, um, Elon Musk, all kinds of super wealthy people are putting into farmland and agriculture right now is, is just, it's really mind blowing. And so, um, you know, and with inflation continuing to increase, I think that will continue. Um, we had a man speak to us. He was a specialist in, in farming and agriculture. He runs a fund where he helps institutional investors um, buy up farmland as an investment. He helps it cash flow. And what he was saying was that the trend is, you know, going nowhere but up, essentially. Um, it is extremely hard for places in the U.S. to farm, but it is even harder for emerging markets to farm. Um, he spoke about Brazil, and he said Brazil gets almost all of their fertilizer. They don't produce any fertilizer themselves. Almost all their fertilizer comes from uh, Russia and Ukraine. And so with the uh, harvest season coming up or the planting season coming up very quickly, if they don't have fertilizer, I mean, they're almost one fifth of the world's production of certain uh, materials. I mean, they're growing corn like crazy. They built uh, they they took a loan from the Chinese and built uh, train tracks all over the country just to move 
uh, these agricultural products and it's about to come to a standstill because they cannot get fertilizer. And without fertilizer, you can't grow crops at the yield that you've been growing them. So this is a serious problem. Um, I've seen some articles about it, some people talking about it, but, uh, but, but it's, it, it's, it's a real, real threat. And so because of that, and, and if you add in the supply chain issues, farmers can't get parts for their uh, vehicles. Um, fuel, fuel is one of the largest expenses on a farm. You need fuel to run tractors. You need fuel to, uh, um, you know, process grain. Uh, you need fuel for energy to um, bring water up from wells to water your fields. And so um, it's going to be a, a real, real difficult time for uh, for farmers and the production amount of of staples that we use in food, wheat, corn, uh, sorghum, soybeans, all those kind of staples that we don't even think about. We just go to the grocery store and purchase. Um, they're going to be much more expensive uh, and uh, of a much less supply than we are used to. And so I think, and what this guy was saying when he was speaking to us, uh, I think the U.S. will be okay in terms of food shortages, but, it will, but who will be hit the hardest is going to be the emerging market economies. If anyone can remember in 2011 when the, um, uh, the revolution spread, uh, they called it the Arab Spring, spread throughout the Middle East. Just that uh, small kind of uh, isolated geopolitical area created food shortages for a serious amount of the population. And now we're talking about large emerging markets like Brazil, like uh, uh, Venezuela and South America, places like even even more uh, what you think of as first world countries, Australia. All these countries are going to have serious problems uh, getting fertilizer to provide the food that the world needs. And so it's not something that the average American or the average person thinks about on a day to day basis. Right. It's just you go to the grocery store, your food is there, you buy it. It's but, you know, you bring it home and you eat it and you don't think about how it's actually produced, what is required to produce it and what controls the price for it. And so I think um, it, it's going to become a serious, uh, serious problem. And it's very, very worrying um, for me because one, a lot of people aren't discussing it. Um, but two, I think there's nothing that we can really do about it. I mean, if Ukraine and Ukraine and Russia is still um, in a prolonged conflict fertilizer is not getting out farmers in ukraine are not able to uh, plant their crops and harvest as they normally would this is going to reverberate throughout the entire world economy um so new york times just did an article and they write the headline is ukraine war threatens to cause a global food crisis and i just want to highlight some of the things that they said in this article here they said uh, a crucial portion of the world's wheat corn and barley is trapped in Russia and Ukraine because of the war, while an even larger portion of the world's fertilizer is stuck in Russia and Belarus. Since the invasion last month, and this blew me away because, you know, I follow this stuff. I'm in the land business. I, I didn't even believe how high these prices rose. It says, since the invasion last month, wheat prices have increased by 21%, barley by 33%, and fertilizers by 40%. That is if anyone knows this business or anyone knows uh, uh, commodity prices to have increases like that within a month is unprecedented and unheard of. And 
you know, when you have the, the basic staple like wheat or corn rising in price, that just is magnified when it comes to other prices of, of the end production of food, you know, like uh, certain breads, cookies, cakes, all these things that are made from wheat, um, um, you know, and corn, corn tortillas, etc. These things that the price increases are magnified because it all goes down the supply chain, especially when you have um, much higher prices for for gas to transport these items is going to be more expensive. And, um, you know, some some farmers in some certain countries may say, you know what, it's just not worth it. We're just going to shut down production and just wait until it's more viable until we can get fertilizer. And, and, and again, that will cause an even higher spike um, in fertilizer, wheat, barley, corn, etc. Um, the article goes on to say, it says the upheaval was compounded by major challenges that were already increasing prices and squeezing supplies. This is kind of what I stated earlier, pandemic, shipping constraints, high energy costs, recent droughts and fires. Um, economists, aid organizations and government officials are warning of the repercussions, which is a severe increase in world hunger. Uh, the looming disasters laying bare the consequences of a major war in the modern era of globalization. Prices for food, fertilizer, oil, gas, metals like aluminum, nickel, and palladium are all rising fast and expect worse as the effects cascade. So basically this article is, is, is parroting what, I, what I've said for a while and what I've been saying and what I've said on this podcast. Um, it says there's no precedent even close to this since World War II. Um, you know, just uh, not to go too far back in history, but this is kind of what I'm writing my latest newsletter on. The idea of globalization um, prior to World War II uh, was always looked at with a sort of skepticism, right? Countries knew, you know, if we relied on another country for a certain um, item, a manufactured good, a resource, things like that, that could come back to haunt us in case we ever get into a hot war with that country, right? Because one of the tactics that, I mean, has been used since the Roman era is to cut off a country's supply lines. Um, Britain did it to Germany in World War I by basically creating a blockade with their naval um, uh, armada around German ports. Um, you know, countries throughout history have, have done that. And that, what that does when you cut off their supply lines it um, creates a population who, you know, is hungry, is starving, they can't get food, they can't get materials, and they start pushing their leaders uh, to surrender. Or, you know, a weakened uh, population is much easier to subdue than, than a strong population who's healthy and fed and has a thriving economy. So this idea of globalization, uh, you know, what we think of in globalization of modern terms is basically – you know, we'll produce what we're best at and, and export it to, to you and you can produce what you're best at and exchange export it to us. Right. It's the idea, the economic idea of comparative advantage where one country can say grow. You know, the basic example is one country can grow corn really well and the other country can grow wheat really well. So instead of, you know, us both growing corn and wheat. The country that can grow corn really well will do that. And the country that can grow re wheat really well will do that. And then we'll trade. And that'll give us the best, you know, the most efficient use of our resources. You know, this idea was always looked at with skepticism prior to World War II because, um, you know, it was a much more violent time. There was a, a lot more conflict between nations. And so, um, 
You know, it was looked at as almost suicidal to ship off or, or to allow another country to basically uh, be your sole provider of, of goods or, or multiple countries to be your provider of goods or, or natural resources. And after World War II, you know, there was this kind of, uh, you, you know, if there was the Cold War, but after the 60s, Russia's or the Soviet Union's um, power started waning ever so slightly. And then we evolved in the 80s into this, what they call a unipolar world order, which basically meant that the U.S. was the biggest kid on the block. They ran the show and, excuse me, and they were able to kind of, you know, exert their will on different countries. Um, this led to, an, you know, a very, very stable era of world peace where countries felt comfortable saying, okay, we'll produce, uh, you know, the Saudis and the Russians said, okay, we'll produce oil and sell it to other countries and in exchange they'll sell us goods um you know the u.s basically shut down all of its internal and domestic manufacturing because they said we'll ship u.s dollars to china and china will ship us goods um you know so that that was everyone felt all countries felt very safe in doing this because it was a very very stable and peaceful geopolitical situation now, as we're seeing with uh, the rise of what some people are calling the uh, multipolar world order, which is a instead of the U.S. being the dominant superpower, um, the country will be or the world will be split up into spheres of influence with the U.S. having a sphere of influence, China having a sphere of influence and Russia having a sphere of influence. Well, this kind of turns the idea of globalization on its head because now you have countries that can use um, um, weakness, the economic weaknesses of other countries to exploit them, to exert their will on them, et cetera. And so, I mean, perfect example, you have Russia and, and Europe, right? Russia supplies almost all the energy to Western Europe, natural gas and oil. And Europe, um, you know, has a geopolitical strife or, or I mean, I guess you could say a beef with what uh, Russia is doing in Ukraine, you know, right or wrong. I'm not taking sides on that. I'm just stating the facts. Europe does not like what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but they cannot cut them off and sanction them fully because they rely on Russia for almost all of their gas and almost all of their oil. If they if they shut down, um, which I've seen articles that they're thinking about it, I think it's impossible for them to do. And I think if they do, it'll be suicidal. If they tell Russia, we're not going to buy any more gas from you or oil from you, um, that's going to create a serious economic uh, destruction in Europe. I mean, when almost all of your energy comes from a certain pipeline, comes from Russia, it'd be very, very detrimental to your economy to shut that off. And so, um, and vice versa, I mean, Russia now, um, you know, Russia has all kinds of imports coming in from the United States. They're they're doing trade on the U.S. banking system, basically the SWIFT uh, banking system. They have they import uh, technology chips, certain things like that from the United States. Um, and, you know, they have all kinds of global corporations that operate in their country. Um, you know, just some of some of the ones that have famous ones that have come out and, you know, tried to sanction Russia, Russia, McDonald's, Nike, 
uh, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, et cetera, right? So all these countries, all these global companies basically said, we don't like what you're doing in Ukraine, so we're going to stop doing business with you. Well, I mean, seeing that, I think other countries are taking note and they're saying, wait a second, if we do something that the West, the U.S. and Europe doesn't like, you know, we're not going to be able to provide our our people with with clothing, with technology. They're not going to be able to operate on the banking system. Our equity markets uh, are not going to be able to operate on certain global exchanges. We're not going to get certain exports. I mean, there people countries are watching what's going on now and they're starting to see, uh, wait a second, this is really dangerous. Um, this is this this is bad for us because this globalized world, this globalized world trade is creating a problem and is creating the ability for other countries to exert their will on us. And so I, my personal opinion is, is the idea of globalization, the idea that everyone's going to be happy, healthy trading partners is, is going to wane, is going to wane uh, very quickly and severely. And I think countries are going to look uh, internally and see what they can do internally and domestically to protect themselves from these situations. And I think that's going to include um, a lot of agriculture, a lot of uh, harvesting of natural resources. And I think it's going to be less about harvesting these natural resources to export them, uh, um, export them and get money. And I think it's going to be more about keeping them for national security. And again, this this idea, it may seem... Uh, foreign to anyone who was born, you know, after the World War II era of peace. But if you look back in history, I mean, this was a very, very common idea. It's like, yeah, we we want to produce things for ourselves because if if trade, if we ever get into a war with another country, trade is going to shut down and we will starve to death. And so I think um, I think the consequences of what happened in terms of the sanctions with this Russia and Ukraine war, and now the uh, uh, the extreme rise in prices for these commodities, and, and basically the shutdown of trade has caused um, countries to kind of look domestically and kind of reevaluate some of their policies. I mean, the United States, if, if China wanted to, I mean, it would hurt them as well. But if China wanted to, they could basically say, we're not going to ship any goods to the United States anymore. And what would we do? We have no factories. The U.S. produces nothing. Um, all we have is a lot of debt, dollars, and a service-based economy. So we would be, I mean, we're essentially reliant on China for pretty much everything. Um, and so, of course, they're relying on us to provide them U.S. dollars. But if they get to a point where they're um, uh, able to domestically supply themselves with what they need, we're, the United States is going to be in a world of hurt. And so I hope... And, you know, this is kind of one of the things uh, uh, Trump uh, naturally saw. This was kind of, you know, one of his instincts for all the faults that Trump had. He could see that this was a problem. You know, he he tried and he tried to fight it. He, um, you know, put in these trade embargoes and, and put in tariffs on China and things like that to try to boost U.S. manufacturing. And, um, you know, it didn't work as well as planned. But but hopefully now. Uh, I don't have much faith in this, but hopefully now the U.S. is looking kind of a, at how Russia was basically cut off from the global system um, and, you know, how how being reliant on another country for for your domestic basic necessities is, is very, very dangerous. I mean, China, 
controls almost all of our uh, prescription medicines. Almost all of that is, is made in China or India. Um, China controls basically all our packaging. I mean, every item in Walmart is basically produced in China. And so um, it is a very precarious and dangerous situation if they ever decide that they're going to take the pain of not getting more U.S. dollars and not trading with us um, in order to produce a domestic economy uh, versus sending sending them our goods. And so I hope the U.S. is taking note of this and creating policies that, you know, if we do end up in a conflict with China, that we'll be able to to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's just it's very, very scary. Um, back to this article. Uh, one of the things which I highlight is says Ukrainian farms are about to miss critical planting and harvesting seasons. European fertilizer plants are significantly cutting production because of high energy prices. Farmers from Brazil to Texas are cutting back on fertilizer, threatening the size of the next harvest. So, so, you know, anyone who's familiar with the agricultural industry knows that there's certain seasons where you plant, there's certain seasons where you grow, and then there's certain seasons where you harvest and you store um, um, the end product, and then you can, you know, sell it to manufacturers who can make it into bread and cookies and cakes and, you know, all kinds of stuff that pastas that come from, uh, wheat and corn. Um, and so right now it is, it is the season where, uh, plants are supposed to be, uh, you know, seeds are supposed to be planted, watered, and, and, you know, it'd be harvested in the fall in the Northern hemisphere. And so the problem is, now we're at the point where if you if you pass a certain point in the growing season, it's too late to plant because those plants will not be grown enough by the time uh, it comes to harvest. And so we're right in that period. And it looks like this Ukraine-Russia conflict isn't going to end um, anytime soon. And so we're in this really dangerous period where it's like the amount of wheat that's normally grown uh, throughout the world will not be grown on time because of this dwindling supply. Um, high gas prices, high seed prices, um, price, the price for, um, you know, farm equipment, things like that are just so high that farmers aren't able to farm like they normally are. And so this is going to cause an even further, uh, increase in the price of, of, uh, agricultural goods. Now the, the article says around the world, the result will be even higher grocery bills in February. U.S. grocery prices were already up 8.6% over a year prior. This is the largest increase in 40 years. Economists expect the war to further inflate, inflate those prices. For those living on the brink of food insecurity, the latest surge in prices may push many over the edge. After remaining mostly flat for five years, hunger rose by 18% during the pandemic to between 720 million and 811 million people. Earlier this month, the United Nations said the war's impact on the global food market alone could cause an additional 7.6 million to 13.1 million people to go hungry. I mean, think about that. That is, you're talking about 720 to 811 million people and now an additional 13 million people. So you're talking about about 830 million people will go hungry. I mean, think about the think about that. I mean, that's just, that, that is what, uh, three times the, the population of the United States, the, the United States is at 300 million population, three, every single person in every city in the United States, 
you multiply that by three, and that's how many people are going to go hungry, according to the United Nations. I mean, that is just, it's heartbreaking, and, it, and it's scary, and it's, um, it's just awful, and it's awful for the world. And I personally predict that it's going to be a higher number than this, because I don't think they understand how squeezed uh, a lot of farmers are, especially when it comes to countries like Brazil. I mean, Brazil has been just on a tear producing um, um, an insane amount of agricultural co commodities into the market and they just don't have fertilizer. I mean, that that's going to come off the market. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's just awful. It's really sad. And, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, when, you know, most revolutions, most civil unrest comes when people are hungry, right? When they're, when everyone's fat and happy, the economy is good and things are going well, you don't see uh, geopolitical turmoil around the world. It's when people are starving and hungry and their economies are bad and they feel like they have no hope and no choice. That's when uh, uh, civil unrest starts. And I think this, this uh, snowball effect of extremely high food prices, food shortages, commodity prices being high, Inflation out of control is going to snowball and spiral into a, a really bad situation where people um, feel like they have no choice other than to lash out um, in violence. I mean, the French Revolution, uh, you know, France was a, a power, extremely powerful monarchy for hundreds of years um, until the economy started going bad. The uh, very wealthy elite in France were kind of living high on the hog while the people were starving. You know, there's that famous uh, quote from Marie Antoinette where she said, you know, the, the, the advisors came to her and said, "There's ma'am, there's no bread. We, we, you know, the people are starving. And she flippantly said, you know, let them eat cake then, right? Because she just had no idea. She was so out of her uh, element, so far removed from the struggles of the average person um, that she just basically, you know, didn't understand what it, what it was like to not have uh, a food. And so when people are starving, that's when they pick up, you know, pitchforks and torches. And so, you know, with this, uh, with the impact that's coming, um, there's going to be a lot of geopolitical unrest, um, a lot of geopolitical unrest. And where that goes, I don't think anyone can predict um, but I think it's safe to say that this, that the 2020s will be much more violent, uh, than the previous, uh, decades that came before it. I think that you're going to start to see violence between, you know, citizenry against their governments, uh, governments against governments, you know, countries versus countries. And then you're going to see this, this resistance and shift from this unipolar world order to this multipolar world order. And so it's, uh, you know, and you have to think about when you think of when you think of markets and you think of this from obviously we think of it as a humanitarian point of view. People are starving and and, and how horrible that's going to be for the suffering of the individual. But if you zoom out and you look at this from a uh, macroeconomic point of view, uh, from an investment point of view in markets, you think to yourself, OK, what's um, what's what's going to happen here? I mean, how is this going to go? So you have. Um, again, what I would call emerging market economies, Armenia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and Eritrea, who have imported virtually all their wheat from Russia and Ukraine, all of it, almost all their food supplies come from Russia and Ukraine. 
Um, and so they must find, you know, they, they need to find new sources because they need to eat. Their population is going to be starving. The problem is they're competing against larger buyers like Turkey, Egypt, Bangladesh, Iran, um, which previously have obtained 60% of their wheat from Ukraine and Russia. So, I mean, you have some big, big players uh, who need to feed their population who have, have gotten almost all of their wheat or 60% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Um, do you think that's going to have effect on their populations if they go to the store and the shelves are empty because there's, there's no food because of this Ukraine and Russia war? Oh, I think it absolutely will. And, you know, as uh, the famous saying that they always say on CNBC is that, you know, Wall Street doesn't like unknowns. Wall Street wants to know uh, uh, knowns. And here we're coming into an era of big, big unknowns. I mean, food shortages, inflation, commodity prices high, uh, geopolitical tensions that are just going to be off the charts. And so, you know, this this I think this era of U.S. dominance in uh, in equities and markets, you know, put your money in the S&P 500 and it goes up 10% every year. I think that is done. It has to be done. I think this, uh, we're entering a completely new phase of uh, the world economy that most investors alive, I mean, I haven't personally seen, but I'm a student of history. I can go back and look. But most investors alive have never seen the type of macroeconomic environment that we are about to enter. Um, and so the, the old investment playbook needs to be thrown out the window and there needs to be a new investment playbook that, that people use um, for long-term financial success. And so, um, you know, I think, I think that a lot of people aren't uh, ready for what's coming. And so, you know, markets, I think markets are going to have to adjust uh, to this new environment. I mean, you know, I think in January, February of this year, we had that quick 10% drop in markets. You know, the S&P, uh, the NASDAQ, I think, touched down 20%. But that's nothing. I mean, that's a, a 10% or a 20% drop in the history of markets is normal in a year. But we're on the, we're on the verge of legitimate you know, food shortages, economic crisis, and potentially World War Three. Uh, you would think a ten percent of the ten percent drop in the S and P would be, you know, happen in a day, right? So I think uh, what and my personal opinion is that a lot of investors aren't haven't fully wrapped their heads. I mean, there's some that have, but a lot of the retail investors, especially, have not fully wrapped their heads around what this new economic environment is going to look like. And I think uh, equities are going to underperform um, the next 10 years uh, that they did the previous 10 years. I mean, you're not going to be at this uh, eight or 9% average of uh, equity returns over the next century. I mean, uh, PE ratios don't support that. Valuations don't support that. History doesn't support that. And the macroeconomic environment doesn't support that. And now you have the Fed, who is basically saying, you know, uh, in their own way, inflation's out of control, and we're going to raise rates. And so, I mean, this this environment is 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 very very bearish for U.S. equities, and I think the overall trend will continue down. I think, of course, you know, in every bear market, the most vicious rallies come in bear markets. Uh, you know, they call them the rip your face off rallies because. 
you'll be going down every day and then all of a sudden shorts will cover and you'll be up 2% in a day and, 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 you know, your, your puts will, will get stopped out and things like that. But I think the overall trend here is going to be going to be down. And so, you know, it is always much more, and I found this in my trading career, um, you know, in 2020, I made a lot of money by shorting the markets, uh, by put options into uh, 2020 when COVID started. Um, I, you know, made five times my annual salary in two months because I knew COVID was coming and it was going to affect the markets. Um, but then in 2021, when I saw the markets were overvalued, um, you know, my account took big hits, uh, you know, shorting into that basically just endless rally. And so I've learned uh, in my trading that it is much harder, much, much harder to make money uh, trading if you're going to trade on the downside, the short side, than if you're trading um, with calls in an uptrend. And so this is going to be very, very tricky to navigate here. And, And, you know, the reason being is you could say, yeah, I know a year from now the markets will be lower than they are today. But in that time frame, you could have 5, 10, 15 percent rallies that blow out your put put options or that just bleed your, you know, your theta. And you could really lose a bunch of money, even though in the end you were right. The market went down, um, but you weren't able to time it correctly or you're just, you know, the put options just weren't priced uh, to where you can make money on it. So this this environment is going to be very, very difficult for people to navigate. Um, you know, people are going to try and short the market and get blown out. People are going to try and, uh, uh, go along the market thinking the fed will reverse, but it's not going to happen. The trend is going to be down. So you have to be very careful, um, about how you trade this, this market over this next, I would say 18 to 24 months, because it's not going to be as easy as buying put options and just waiting and, and cashing in your check, because it's going to be, uh, in my opinion, a long, slow drip fall as opposed to, you know, five, 10% downs in a day. And I mean, I think we'll have those, I think we'll have those days, but I think it's going to be a a slow trend of, you know, uh, two steps down, one step up, two steps down, one step up type of market. And I think, to be honest, that's going to be the worst type of market for retail investors because they're going to get blown out. Uh, Their accounts are going to get blown out both on the long and the short side. So the key in my opinion, is going is to be nimble, uh, to be able to trade these uh, trends, to not get thrown off your game when when the markets reverse against you, and to play the long game. You know, um, um, keep your risk small. Risk management is a key both in downside and upside markets. You know, you have to keep your risk small, and you have to trade options with a long with a long term expiration date. You know, catching these, uh, you know, one week DTE options, these one month expiration options that that's going to be very difficult because, again, like I said, you can have rip your face off rallies that blow your account out of the water. And two weeks later, the market's down to where your option uh, was. And now, you know, you could have made money, but you lost it because you just weren't able to time it right. So the key is going to be to be nimble, 
to manage risk and to uh, play options with long dated expirations. That's, that's the key. I mean, I can't, I can't stress that enough. It's not going to be one of those type of markets where you can blindly buy calls at 10 AM every morning and sell it at three o'clock and you made, you know, 30% for the day. It's not going to be one of those markets. You have to be very, very careful. And, you know, for most investors, I would honestly advise uh, not even, you know, not even trying to play this to the downside, just kind of sit on the sidelines with, you know, maybe some cash some other kind of investments and just let this ride out until you get comfortable with the place where you can go long, because uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to make money. Uh, you know, it is very, very difficult to make money in bear markets. It's going to be even more difficult in this type of market where a headline is shifting you know, the S&P 5% in either direction. And so you have to be very, very nimble. But if you think that is too difficult for you or that's just too risky for you to try and play these these very nimble moves, I would suggest just kind of waiting on the sidelines until until things calm down a little more. But again, I think the overall trend is uh, is down. Um, I think the equity markets are, are going to finish the year uh, in the red for sure. Um, so... And I think the Fed knows that. I think most, you know, most big funds know that. And I think uh, the ones who are going to be left holding the bag is is individual retail investors. So, uh, yeah, take that for what it's worth. Um, also, if you want to play the long side, I'd look at these commodities. I mean, some of these uh, agricultural names have been beaten down over the years. Um, um, you know, there's all kinds of miners that are out there. I mean, I, I can't recommend individual companies, but you can take a look for yourselves at some of these uh, agricultural commodity and mining companies that are still very undervalued, even after this, you know, huge run up in price. So definitely keep those in mind if you're, if you're wanting to play this, play this on the long side. And the last thing I want to talk about before I wrap up here is just the, um, kind of the, uh, the status of the Russian Ukraine war. Um, I've been, uh, you know, talking about this for, for months. I was, you know, predicting that Russia was going to invade for, you know, months and months before it's happened. Anyone who's read my newsletter, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, um, you know, that I've been talking about this for a long time. And so my, my biggest fear was, uh, a misstep by the U S and getting us involved in this. And, you know, fortunately, as of this point, that has not happened. Um, but I'm starting to see some of the signs that, you know, if anyone looks back in history, especially most poignantly is World War One, where conflict started between two countries. And because of this interweb of alliances, all these other countries ended up in the conflict when, you know, they really didn't have any reason to be in conflict with one another. And so that's my biggest fear now with um with you know these calls for nato to set up a no fly zone uh moving of nato troops to the poland uh, uh border um you know russia's border basically just increasing the amount of troops doing exercises my biggest fear is that somehow there's either a miscalculation or russia decides that you know they can't allow weapons coming into the fight in ukraine through poland they lash out at Poland, who's a NATO member, and then, you know, the domino effect just goes from there. And so I, I got this article here from Yahoo News, and it says, Kremlin lashes out at Poland for siding with Ukraine. 
Uh, in a blistering social media post, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, a top Kremlin security advisor, he's also a, essentially a Putin lackey, um, lashed out at Poland for its support of Ukraine, reviving and escalating decades-long tensions between Moscow and Warsaw. Poland's surprisingly spirited defense of Ukraine would produce expensive and pointless, Medvedev predicted, ominously adding that he was confident Warsaw would make the right choice and embrace Brace Russia again. Medvedev, a close ally of Vladimir Putin, blah, blah, blah. Um, basically, then he went on to say, the interests of Polish citizens have been sacrificed to Russophobia by, quote, talentless politicians and their puppeteers in the United States. Um, he called the Polish leaders political imbeciles who were spreading vulgar propaganda about Russia. So, I mean, here we see the kind of the, the psychological or the media war heating up now uh, between Russia and Poland, because Russia, you know, is is fighting a war in Ukraine and Poland is, is you know, constantly bashing them, you know, right or wrong, however you believe, constantly bashing them and, um, you know, supplying weapons or allowing weapons to be supplied through their country to the Ukrainians. And so, you know, if the United States found out that in Iraq, you know, certain countries were uh, providing the insurgents weapons. We would not be very happy at those countries. And so here we have, you know, it openly being talked about that the U.S. and Europe are providing uh, javelin missiles, stingers, ammunition, um, food, things like that um, to support the Ukrainian war effort. And Russia is not not very happy with it. And so I hope, you know, my fear is that. Um, you know, there's going to be some sort of Polish or NATO convoy bringing weapons into Ukraine to help the Ukrainians fight against Russia. And Russia says enough is enough and bombs one of them. And now it's at a point where there's a direct attack on NATO and then NATO gets embroiled into a conflict with, with nuclear armed Russia. And it just will not well end well for anyone and just be horrible. So I pray that this doesn't happen, but I'm starting to see the signs. The rhetoric is starting to build. Um, uh, one of the Ukrainian parliament members branded Medved's moosings as psychotic on Twitter. He said, the rhetoric is similar to what we're hearing about Ukraine in the months leading up to last month's invasion, which shattered the post-Cold War order in Eastern Europe. This is a direct assault on Poland. Well, okay. Basically, you in Ukraine's eyes, the best thing for that that could happen for them would be to bring NATO into this war, right? They think they think they so they're doing everything possible using the media, using uh, you know psychological operations, uh, having President Zelensky meet with NATO, talk with NATO, beg for weapons, beg for no fly zone, things like that. Because think about it from their point of view, they are invaded by a much larger country with a much larger army and more resources. And the only way they can win this fight is by bringing in NATO, who is, you know, much larger country, much larger resources to fight Russia. And so anything that comes out of, you know, the Ukrainian leadership's uh, mouth or Twitter or, or media, I always take, I always look at through the lens of they want to bring NATO into this war because that's the only way that they're going to stop stop Russia and survive. And so, um, you know, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm seeing these signs and it's getting me very worried, but I hope that we don't uh, get involved. Um, you know, I hope that Poland is smart enough to realize that, you know, they shouldn't be allowing weapons that are supporting, you know, the death of Russians to come through their country. But, um, 
Um, you know, it just uh, one of the what I can say is hopefully it doesn't happen, but it looks like this isn't going to end anytime soon. And to me, it looks like it's this this conflict in this part of the world is going to escalate. And so, um, you know, make your investments and your decisions uh, based on that, uh, based on this conflict, not ending, ending anytime soon and potentially escalating. And so, um, again, praying that this doesn't happen, that this that my biggest fears don't come to light. But it's um, it's yeah, it's uh, it's scary. It's definitely scary. So so we need to just keep watching the news and again, be humble, be flexible in, in, in your investments. Well, um, I thank you all so much for being here again. I apologize for not having a podcast, uh, last week as often as I early, you know, usually do because, um, everything I had going on, but luckily I was able to take, you know, what I was involved in with the, this, this, uh, land broker meeting and these meetings with these agricultural experts and kind of bring you some investment knowledge on, uh, how, how to play this and how this may play out in, in the geopolitical sense, um, Oh, something that I was going to mention that I've been talking about a little bit on Twitter is that um, what I'm what I'm thinking about doing is, you know, a lot of people have been asking how I trade, um, you know, what I'm trading on a specific day, things like that. Um, And so what I was planning on doing was kind of make my, you know, it's very difficult, you know, in this kind of market, how flexible things are, how quickly things change to be able to send a newsletter or to be able to send, you know, I usually tweet out almost all of my trades, um, you know, to be able to explain myself and why I'm making certain trades in real time. Um, so what I was planning on doing was was starting a subscription service um, where I would have my account completely transparent. I'd probably start with about $25,000. The goal would be to turn it from $25,000 into $100,000 within a three to four month time frame. And I was going to use uh, an app called Discord. Uh, basically, it allows you to to message out in real time, you know, just a quick summary of the trades I'm making for that day or that week or that month, uh, a little bit of snippet about why. And um, it'll be on a, on a fee basis. I'm, I'm experimenting with what I'm going to charge, but I think it's going to be around $9.99. And basically, you know, what I've said on Twitter is worst case scenario, you watch me lose all my money and you can laugh or best case scenario, you can watch me make, uh, you turn 25,000 into a hundred thousand and, and maybe kind of, uh, replicate, um, some of what I'm doing. You know, I'm not a financial advisor and I can't tell you what to do with your money or how to trade or recommend specific companies, but I can let you watch, um, and see what I've done. And, uh, I've been pretty successful at it. So, um, it might be something to think about something worthwhile. Um, my goal is to start that around mid-April, um, and I think, and the reason being is I think uh, the best opportunities, especially on the downside of this market, is going to be around mid-April. I think that's when you know things are going to be really heating up, and and the market is just going to uh, get increasingly volatile around that time. And whenever there's a volatile market, there's an opportunity for short-term traders to make the most money. And so I'll be I'll be tweeting that out. My tw- my Twitter is retirement right. It's at retirement, right? And so you can find me on there and I'll be tweeting out more information about uh, how to get involved with that if you're interested in that. Otherwise, you know, you can always check my newsletter, the warrenletter.substack.com. Contact me on Twitter or or send me a message on this uh, call-in app. Um, I appreciate all of you so much. Thank you again for uh, for listening. And uh, I'll take 
any kind of uh, questions or things like that, you can just send me a, a, a message on Twitter and I can get to it next podcast. Again, thank you all. Um, I appreciate it. Have a great, have a great rest of your week. And um, I look forward to hearing some, from some of you on Twitter. Thanks.